There was a rock climber who lost his footing, began to free fall down the side of the mountain. By some miraculous event, he was able to take hold of a branch that was growing out the side of the cliff. Once he gathered himself and got his bearings, he lifted up to the heavens and he whispered a prayer asking, is there anyone up there? Yes, came the reply. It's the Lord. Do you believe in me? The rock climber said, absolutely, I believe in you, but I need your help because I can't hang on much longer. And the Lord replied, it's not a problem. I can rescue you. I just need you to let go of the branch. The rock climber, after a moment of silence, said, yeah, but is there anybody else up there? You know, it's one thing to declare faith. It's another thing to demonstrate faith. It's one thing to proclaim faith. It's another thing to practice faith. George Mueller said that faith is not bound in the realm of the possible, for faith begins where man's power ends. John Calvin said it this way, that faith is not A cold and distant truth, but faith is a warm embrace of Christ Jesus our Lord. It was Clement of Alexandria who said that faith is a voluntary anticipation. The author of the Hebrew letter says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Today we begin a five-part sermon series entitled Faith. We're going to study the life of a man who lived 4,000 years ago. And even though his story is antiquated, it's just as contemporary as the Sunday morning newspaper. So with that in mind, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 1 to 9. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 12, let us begin at verse 1, we'll read through verse 9. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, whoever curses you I will curse All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. They set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated.
you and I are called to be a people of faith. But what does that look like? This morning, I want to talk to you about four facts of faith. They're found in this passage. They're just as true in Abraham's life as they are in your life and my life. The first little fun fact about faith is this, that faith always begins with God. Faith always begins with God. Our passage begins, the Lord had said to Abram. That word Lord is written in all capital letters. That communicates to you that this is Yahweh, the one true God of the universe. The same Lord that scattered the stars into space is the same Lord that now speaks to Abram. It seems as if the warp speed pace of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis comes to a screeching halt when you get to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Many theologians call the first 11 chapters universal history. Nobody knows with certainty the amount of time that elapsed from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 11-32. I realize it only takes a few minutes to read. Undoubtedly, it would have taken many millenniums to actually live. But when you and I come to the end of chapter 11, the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, it's almost as if God pushes the pause button. It's almost as if he stops his discourse to a screeching halt so that you and I can focus in on the one he has honed in, the one named Abram. It's almost as if God wants us to know with uncanny ability that he has zeroed in on this life, legacy, and lineage of this one man. When you stop and think about it, the first 11 chapters of Genesis take millenniums to live. But beginning in chapter 12, to chapter 50. It's really all about four individuals. It's about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. It's their story. It's almost as if God says, I don't want you to miss this. I've honed in on this one person on purpose. Because faith always begins with God. The man's name is Abram. We know him better as Abraham. God will change his name later in his journey. We know with a great deal of accuracy that Abraham was born in 2165 B.C., some 4,000 years ago. The previous verses of Genesis chapter 11 tell us that Abraham had a father. His name was Terah. They were from Ur of the Chaldeans, which would be present-day Iraq. Ur of the Chaldeans was an influential city. It was also a very affluent city. At this time in human history, Ur of the Chaldeans boasted a, a primitive a plumbing system in their town. They also had streets that were lined with two-story whitewashed houses. There was a large public library in Ur of the Chaldeans. There was also a very spacious marketplace. To say that Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans is to communicate He's a city slicker. He is one who has lived in the lap of luxury. He has wealth. His family comes from wealth. He was one who knew what it was to live in the city and to be a man of the city. In fact, Ur of the Chaldeans was known for its pagan worship. It was a very diverse religious town, but it was most known for its worship of the moon god. It is a safe speculation for us to assume that Abraham 
was a pagan man who worshipped the god of the moon. He probably indulged in many of the lifestyles that were common for pagan worship and pagan practice in those days. In other words, he probably was not the most moral of men. Abraham had a past. Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham was selected by God. Don't miss the obvious. That long before Abraham knew about God, God knew about Abraham. Long before Abraham believed in God, God believed in Abraham. There was nothing about Abraham's past that helped or hindered the call of God upon his life. It was all about God because faith begins with God. There was nothing about his past that somehow helped God out. There was nothing about his resources, his ability. There was nothing about his wealth that somehow God said, ooh, I can really use that guy. There was also nothing about Abraham's past that hindered the call of God where God said, there's no way I can use that guy. Faith begins with God. That's true in Abraham's narrative. That's true in your narrative too. There is nothing about your past that helps or hinders God. There's nothing about you that, uh, all of you have different talents and abilities and resources, and there's nothing uh, about your narrative that helps God. There's also not a person listening to my voice who doesn't have some embarrassing skeleton in his or her closet, and I want to tell you that there's nothing about your past that hinders God either, because faith begins with God. Long before you believed in God, God believed in you. Long before you knew God, God knew you. If we learn anything from the story of Abraham, we learn that faith begins with God. We are told about his daddy, Terah. We are told that uh, Abraham had a wife named Sarai. Later, her name will be changed to Sarah. We don't know much about Sarah at this point other than the fact that we know that she's barren. She's unable to conceive and give birth to a child. That's going to become important later in the story. We know that Abraham had a couple of brothers. We know that uh, Terah decided to move the family from Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan. Before they could get to Canaan, they stopped in Haran. Many believe that's the ancestral town of Abraham's family and Terah said we're not going any further we're stopping here and they lived there for quite some time I don't know how long and then Terah died at the ripe young age of 205 the question before us is um, when did God call Abraham we get to our passage of Genesis 12:1, and it says, The Lord had said to Abram. If you're not careful, you'll think to yourself, Well, that call of God came after the death of Daddy. And if you think that, I, I, I think that you need to be cautioned because I think that it actually came long before the death of Terah. The reason I know that is because Stephen, one of the first martyrs of the church, 
In his rendition that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 7, he says that while Abraham was in the land of Mesopotamia, long before he went to Haran, the God of glory appeared to him, spoke to him saying, Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Long ago, the Lord spoke to Abraham, and the case could be made that it was Abraham that urged Daddy, we've got to go to Canaan, we've got to go to Canaan, we've got to go to Canaan. And then, when they got as far as Haran, Daddy said, that's it, I'm not going any further. And then he died there, and now Abraham has a choice to make. His choice is legitimate, it is real, it is huge. Is he going to stay in the place of his ancestry? Or is he going to go back to Ur of the Chaldeans, that place of comfort and the lap of luxury? Or is he going to follow to this land that he's never seen? Is he going to actually follow the call and will of God? This is a huge decision that Abraham has to make. Faith not only begins with God, number one, but number two, faith never leaves you where you are, but it always leads you to where God wants you to be. In his commentary on the book of Genesis, it's Ken Matthews who says, God's call never leaves you unchanged or unmoved. For the call of God upon your life is a consistent call to separate from the securities of this world. God's call upon your life will never leave you unchanged or unmoved. You cannot encounter the holy God of the universe and stay the same. You've got to be changed. You've got to be moved. And Ken Matthews is exactly right. For God's call upon your life will not leave you unchanged or unmoved. In fact, it'll be a call that demands that you separate from the securities of this world. When the Lord said to Abraham, listen, I want you to leave your country, your people, and your father's household, what he's saying is, I want you to leave the securities of this world. I don't want you to depend on what you can do for yourself. I don't want you to depend on all the things that you have, all the stuff that surrounds you, all your circumstances. I want you to depend solely upon me because faith never leaves you where you are, but it always leads you to where God wants you to be. Implicit in Abraham's story are two questions asked by God. These two questions that God consistently implies all throughout Abraham's narrative is consistently asked and implied in your narrative and mine. Here are the two questions. God always asks, will you trust me and will you obey me? Do you trust me and will you obey me? Consistently in the story, he is implying this to Abraham and God consistently implies this to you and to me. Do you trust me, God says? Will you obey me? In Genesis chapter 12, he's asking Abraham, do you trust me with your past? In Genesis 22, Abraham's going to take his one and only son, Isaac, go atop Mount Moriah, and there, in obedience to the command of God, he's going to go through the procedure of sacrificing his son. And in that story of Genesis 22, he's going to ask, do you trust me with your future? Some of us live in Genesis 12, 
And today, God is asking, do you trust God with your past? Some of you live in Genesis 22 today, and God is saying, do you trust me with your future? Do you trust me, God says, and will you obey me? My friends, I hear the voice of God saying to us today, do you trust me with your Monday mornings? Do you trust me with your marriage? Do you trust me with your money? Do you trust me with your employment or do you trust me with your lack of employment? Do you trust me with your prodigal? Do you trust me with your health concern? Do you trust me with the need for that reconciled relationship? Do you trust me? I hear the Lord also asking you and me, will you obey me? Will you obey what I tell you to do? Will you obey where I tell you to go? Will you obey what I tell you to think? Will you obey how I tell you to feel? Will you obey the identity I have stamped upon you? And will you obey what is right and wrong according to my word? Do you trust me and will you obey me? These are the questions that God implicitly asked of Abraham and he still asks it of you and of me. Do you trust me and will you obey me? Faith always begins with God. Secondly, faith never leaves you where you are, but it always leads you to where God wants you to be. And it's at this moment that God gives Abraham a blockbuster blessing. Did you hear about the blessing? I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. It's at this moment that you and I begin to realize why God has honed in on Abraham. He honed in on Abraham because God says, I have sovereignly selected you to bring about redemptive history for all the world. Through your line, through your lineage, I'm going to give you a seed. The Apostle Paul says that the seed singular of Abraham is the Lord Jesus Christ. So even here in the very first book of the Bible, God is thinking about the, the giving of his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason God honed in is because he said, I am going to bless the entire world through you. I'm going to bring about redemptive history through your offspring. Now, this is awesome. When you stop and think about, he says unto Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to bless your socks off. All right. I'm, I'm going to do something that you can't even begin to fathom. I will make you into a great nation. Now, keep in mind that originally Abraham is a pagan guy. And only a great God can take a pagan guy and a barren woman and make a great nation, right? I mean, only God can do that. God says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. And Abraham says, wow, that's gonna be awesome. I don't know how you're gonna do it because my sweet darling uh, wife, Sarah, I mean, she's beautiful and gorgeous, but she's barren. She can't have no kids. I mean, how are you going to do this? I don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make your name great. You can't help but compare Genesis 11 to Genesis 12. And Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. And it's there that people say, we're going to build for us a great city. We're going to build a tower as high as the heavens. 
so we can get to God and be like God. For we will make a great name for ourselves. In Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abraham, I will make a great name for you. You know, all of life, you have one of two choices. Either you're going to try to make a great name for yourself, or you're going to allow God to make a great name for himself through you. You got those only two choices. Either you're going to make much of yourself, or you're going to make much of your Savior. When you compare Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, you see that stark contrast where people in Genesis 11 said, we're going to make ourselves great. And in Genesis 12, God takes a nobody. God takes a pagan. God takes somebody who doesn't know much about anything about God. And he says, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to make your name great. And furthermore, I've got your back. For I will bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. All the world will be blessed through you. My friends, if that were you instead of Abraham, how many takers do I have on this blockbuster blessing? I mean, every hand should go up. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm in. Absolutely, I'm in. I mean, God, if you're going to do something remarkable and miraculous, if if you have my back, if you're going to, yes, I'm in. Count me in. The third fun fact about faith is this. That faith is a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. Faith is a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. You and I come to verse 4. So Abram left, just as the Lord had told him. Abraham had a choice to make. In his faith journey, he had a choice to make. In your faith journey, you have a choice to make. Are you going to take God at his word? Are you going to follow wholeheartedly after him? Or are you going to try to make much of yourself? And Abraham understood that faith is a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. It's A.W. Tozer who says, The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. And the Bible recognizes no obedience that does not spring from faith. A.W. Tozer is exactly right. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead you to obedience. And the Bible recognizes no obedience that does not spring from faith in God. The two are inextricably tied together. So in your journey, in your narrative, you've got to get to a place where you say God knows what he's talking about. God is who he says he is. I am who God says I am. And I trust him. I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing, but I'm going to trust him. Remember, Abraham has a huge choice to make. Does he stay in Haran? Does he go back to Ur of the Chaldeans and comfort and the lap of luxury? Or does he exchange the known for the unknown? And does he follow hard after God? What would you do? How would you respond? If you were Abraham, what would you do? Nobody would have blamed him to stay in Haran. Nobody would have questioned him had he gone to Ur of the Chaldeans. But Abraham knows obedience is required, for faith is a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. So Abraham does not debate God like Moses will do. He does not defy God like Jonah will do. He does not disobey God like David will do. He simply obeys God. God tells him to go, and he goes. It seems as if there's no questions asked. Now remember, when Abraham leaves Haran, he's 75 years old. 
I realize he lives to be 175, but still, 75 years old, he's no spring chicken. Can I get an amen? I promise you what some people said. They said, have you seen what Abraham is doing? That old boy is having a midlife crisis. His daddy just died, and everybody knows you don't make any life-altering decisions once a tragedy happens. His daddy just died. He ought to stay here with his ancestors, or at least he needs to go back to where he's comfortable and confident in the early Chaldeans. But what's he doing? He's going to a God-forsaken place. He's going to the Canaan uh, area. He's going with the Canaanites. Can you believe he's doing this? There were some who said he must be going through a midlife crisis. Because a lot of people in the world don't understand faith. They can't understand faith. Abraham is 75 years old when he leaves. He leaves on a wing and a prayer. He leaves with a holy hunch. Nothing much more than that. It takes 25 additional years for the promised child to be born. 25 years is a mighty long time to wait for the fulfillment of God's promise, don't you think? I mean, most of us don't want to wait two and a half months for the fulfillment of God's promise, let alone two and a half decades. 25 years is a long time to have to wait. That's a lot of birthdays. That's a lot of anniversaries. That's a lot of Christmases. That's a lot of Easter's. That's a lot of summer vacations. 25 years. Friends, have you ever had to wait on God for 25 years? You ever had to wait on God a mighty long time to mend a marriage? Have you ever had to wait a mighty long time for God to give you employment? Have you ever had to wait a mighty long time for the prodigal daughter to appear over the horizon? You ever had to wait a mighty long time for miraculous healing to your body or to the life of a loved one? Have you ever had to wait on God a mighty long time? The argument could be made that Abraham does not see the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. Yes, he sees Isaac, and yes, he sees the fulfillment partially, but he doesn't see the ultimate fulfillment. And yet he says, I don't have to see it to believe it. I'm going to follow in obedience. Because faith is a one-way ticket to absolute obedience. When he gets there, he... He takes his immediate family, he takes his young nephew Lot, he takes his possessions, he takes the people he has acquired, he takes everything from Haran, he sets out for Canaan. Why does he take everything? For two reasons. Number one, he knows those things will help sustain his life, and number two, he has no plan of retreating. He's not going back. God told him to go, he's going to go. It's a one-way ticket, absolute obedience. It's not a round-trip ticket. One-way ticket, absolute obedience. And so he goes. When he gets to Canaan, there are a lot of Canaanites in the land. And I'm sure that Abraham must have had a conversation with God. A conversation with something like this. "Uh, God, hello. (laughs) Why are they there? This is my land. This is the land you promised me. Why are they there? And they big. (laughs) And they're numerous. And all I've got is me. And, and my family and, you know, just a handful of people. Uh, God, did I make a wrong turn? God, 
Did I hear you clearly? God, did you make a mistake? I'm sure there were times that Abraham, though he followed in wholehearted obedience, realizing it's a one-way ticket of obedience, I'm sure there were times when he questioned, I'm sure there were times that he had the dark night of the soul, I'm sure there were times that he doubted, but yet he still pressed on. And even though the Canaanites were there, that did not mean that Abraham had misinterpreted the will of God. You know, we have the kookiest way of interpreting God's will. You know this, don't you? For most of us, we interpret God's will as the path of least resistance. If there aren't a whole lot of problems, that must be God's will because he's removed all the obstacles. That's what we say, right? We think that God's will has to be the absence of problems, the the absence of obstacles, the, the absence of issues. We think that that's certainly God's will because he's just removed it all and he's kind of lined the path with a a gold lining. And if that's true, then Abraham would have never gone to Canaan. He would have seen the giants and he would have turned around and said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going back to Haran. I'm going back to Ur of the Chaldeans. That's an easier life. But just because there's the presence of obstacles does not necessarily mean it's not the will of God. Lord, there are Canaanites here. And God says, I know. Uh, God, I can't handle this. And God says, exactly, I know. God, I'm going to have to depend on you. Bingo, you got it. Because faith is a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. I like what Alistair Begg says. He says, I'm not sure that there is an ideal place to serve God except in the place where God has set you down. I don't know if there's an ideal place to serve God. I don't know if there's a place absent of suffering and difficulty and Canaanites and obstacles. I don't know if there's an ideal place to serve God except for the place where God has set you down. My friends, are you here today? The answer is yes, yes. Are you with me today? The answer is yes, yes. You're here on purpose. God has set you down here to serve him wholeheartedly. The Lord says to Abraham, to your offspring, I'll give this land. And Abraham (laughs) sets up an altar. Here's the fourth and final fun fact about faith faith holds lightly to possessions and holds tightly to the provider Abraham was a wealthy man and don't miss the irony that this one man who probably at least lived in a two story whitewashed house on Main Street in Ur of the Chaldeans forfeited that lap of luxury for temporary housing in Canaan. He set up a tent, and he lived there. And then when it was time to move, he picked up the tent and moved to another place. It was temporary housing. He exchanged his possessions for his provider. 
He said, I want to be known not for my allegiance to my goods, but my allegiance to my God. I want to leave symbols not of my wealth, but symbols of my worship. So on two occasions, at the end of this passage, he builds an altar unto the Lord. And he worships God. And he leaves the altar there. And he moves on to the next place. If anybody could have deposited signs of wealth, it would have been Abraham. He had a lot of money. But he says, I don't want to be known by my possessions. I want to be known by my love for the provider. So along the way, he would leave an altar unto the Lord. Who is the altar for? Now, obviously, it's for God. But it's not really for God. The altar was constructed for Abraham. So that Abraham would know every time he passed the place, that's where God spoke to me. That's where God revealed his plan to me. That's where God gave me a little bit more of his plan for my life. There it is. And that altar not only was a mental reminder for Abraham, but it also bore testimony to the watching world that this is an altar unto Yahweh. So today... I have to ask you, when was the last time you built an altar unto the Lord? When was the last time you built an altar? I'm not asking you when was the last time you constructed something in the backyard. I mean, maybe you've got an altar in the backyard. I guess that's all right. No problem here. I'm not talking about idolatry. I'm not talking about worshiping that idol or worshiping that altar. I'm just saying, when was the last time you constructed a spot? Maybe it's physical, maybe it's symbolic, but you constructed that spot that every time you pass it, either in your mind's memory or literally as you're walking, you say, you know what? That's the place where God became very real to me. That's the place where faith began to uh, uh, really blossom. That's the faith. That's the place where God reminded me that he's bigger than the Canaanites. When was the last time you built an altar unto the Lord? Can I encourage you today, here and now, built an altar unto God. The purpose of an altar is to remind you how good God is. The purpose of that altar is to remind others how good God is. When I look across the landscape of altars throughout all the Bible, there's one altar that stands above all the rest. It was on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the lamb was sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And the cross of Jesus Christ has replaced that altar. For when you and I look across the pages of the scripture, there is one altar that rises. It's on Mount Calvary. It's in the form of a cross. And Jesus, the perfect lamb of God without blemish, spot, or defect. He was crucified there. Every time you pass the cross, every time you think about the cross, every time you remember the cross, you recall that Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe sin and left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. Oh, my friends, what altar what do you have in your life? The altar that reminds you that God is bigger than your battles. He is stronger than your struggles. He is mightier than your mess-ups. He is the one who is there for you uh, regardless of what's going on in your life. Oh, my friends, today I want you to build an altar unto God. Here and now, I want you to declare my faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument and I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This morning, God is calling you to faith. 
a deeper faith than you've ever had in your life. This morning, I want you to know that faith always begins with God. Long before you believed in him, he believed in you. Faith will never leave you where you are. It will always lead you to where he wants you to be. My friend, you cannot be unchanged when you encounter a holy God. And faith is always a one-way ticket of absolute obedience. And faith holds lightly to possessions and holds tightly to the provider. So today, may God plant great faith in you. And today, may you respond voluntarily and willfully unto the Lord and say, God, I am yours. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. For it reminds me that I can always trust you and I must always obey you. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this day. We give you this invitation. Oh God, there may be some people here who've never thought about you in this way. Oh Father, maybe today there's some people who have never thought about the concept that you have been thinking about them long before they've been thinking about you. And maybe today there are people listening to my voice who need, who need to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, maybe there are people here who need to join your faith family. Maybe there are those who need to just construct an altar right here, right now, where they're seated or here at the front. They just need to come and say, I, I commit myself to you. And here and now, I, I, I construct an altar. And every time I pass this place, I will be reminded of this day and what you said unto me on this day. Lord, I pray we may not be able to see them, but may you see them as, as you look down upon us. May you see altars of praise and worship going up to you. And the highest name on that altar is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may altars be just uh, sprinkled the entire sanctuary today. And may we be able to say, here and now, I give myself away to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.